Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 47, and we have another candid conversation prepared for you. Uh, today, we're talking with Trisha Gillings from Panasonic. She is the product manager for imaging products in uh, Canada. Trisha, it is wonderful to have you. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be on. How's your day going? So far, so good. Yeah, we're uh, it's a Thursday, so we're in the we're in the good half of the week now. Yeah, <laughs> and it's almost Friday for me. <laughs> yeah, you just got off work. You know, all these time zones. Yeah, I did. I did long day at the office, but now I'm already back home, so everything's good. We're thrilled to have you, Trisha. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. So we um we are going to talk a little bit about um, Panasonic products uh, overall, but also about Micro Four Thirds and, and where things fit in. Just to set the stage a little bit so that you know, um, both Alvaro and I, and actually our third co-host, Josh, who's not able to join us today, um, we have all shot um, Micro Four Thirds for quite a long time now. Um, you know, some of us are using other systems now, but that's that's sort of the the system that we, the ecosystem that we all started with. So you're, you're among friends. <laughs> and uh, in my case... I do some video work, uh, or my agency does some video work, and we still shoot everything on uh, a pair of GH4s. So that's pretty cool. So let's, let's I guess, start a little bit um, from, from a zoomed out perspective and talk about um, Micro Four Thirds. One of the cool things about the ecosystem is that unlike um, other manufacturers, there are multiple companies that are contributing to products within this ecosystem. And there's a great degree of compatibility. So Panasonic lenses can be mounted onto Olympus camera bodies and vice versa. Um, that's kind of an interesting uh, relationship that doesn't exist elsewhere in the industry. How, how has it been working out? Like, it, it, is that something that um, turned out to be a good decision? I believe so. Um, you know, history, especially in electronics division, has shown us that you never want to be alone in a format. Right. You know, think beta, think memory stick, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's always good to have someone else in the format with you um, just to give more options to the customer, but also to kind of guarantee that that format doesn't fade away into oblivion, which is you know not good for anyone. Yeah. So I think the whole consortium and collaboration between Panasonic and Olympus is really a win for the customer because they have more choices. And, you know, right now, Micro Four Thirds has one of the biggest lens lineups out there available. So right. that's all great news for the customer. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, the difference here is that within the Micro Four Thirds space, it's all regulated. Like there's actually an official agreement or partnership, if you will. Whereas some other formats, yes, there may be one or two or three manufacturers that are putting out products that are sort of semi-compatible, like Sigma with Canon lenses, for example. Mm -hmm. But those are never actually officially supported. Those are... Yeah, I mean, you're lucky that it works today, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work tomorrow. Yeah, and in some cases, there's situations where they're like reverse engineering firmwares and and uh, yeah, exactly. autofocus stuff. So that's yeah, I mean, this this feels like a it's a truly native um, collaboration, and that that makes it um, really quite compelling. And you mentioned the lens lineup, which is actually one of my favorite aspects of the system. I always feel as if um, almost any focal length, almost any specialty that I that I'm looking for there's a lens for it and the lenses are of outstanding quality I think people actually underestimate the quality of the lenses in the micro four thirds ecosystem and the uh, the degree of quality that you get without having to spend a tremendous amount of money I mean we 
Uh, we're both, you know, big fans of um, some of the kit zooms even that, that come with things. And you can get um, some of the primes, the, the 25 um, Panasonic Leica. I know, Alvaro, you shot with that for quite a while. That Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite lenses for a very long time. Yeah. And it's it's pretty special that, that we can have that. Um, one of the things that I, it makes me curious looking at this system is where the boundary is drawn between, um, you know, Panasonic and Olympus and the other contributors. Like, in a sense, you're collaborating, but you're also kind of competing because you're you're selling products that, you know, I could choose to buy a Panasonic camera or an Olympus camera or lenses and so on and so forth. So where do you see that boundary line between competitor and collaborator? I don't see it as too much of a, of a boundary. You know, I do a lot of trade shows across Canada and Panasonic Olympus were usually side by side and we actually trade off each other because, um, you know, Panasonic strength is in video and Olympus knows that. So they'll recommend some of their video customers to come and buy Panasonic. Right. And if I know that Olympus has a lens or something that we don't carry or it's a faster uh, lens, you know, then we kind of trade off there. So I think that we're helping each other um, as well as, you know, sharing this format. And yes, it is a competition, but, you know, we kind of look at it as we're against the rest of the industry. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the bigger competition. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it because first it's about establishing the system. And once the system is thriving, then then you can worry about competing against each other. But for now, it's let's unite efforts and beat everyone else. And I think that's always the great a great approach. And I think our sales are very similar to where Olympus is. So um, it's not like one of us is outselling the other one because we do have a lot of, um, you know, we have some niche products, but we also have a lot of similarities. So I think, like I said, in the end, it's just good news for the customer. Right. Yeah, no, I think it is for sure. And one of the reasons that I was asking is because um, one of the complaints that we've had um, historically and just in, in mounting one manufacturer's lenses on the other's body and things like that is, um, well, I'll, just a, for a concrete example. So I just finished a uh, really wonderful um, period of time with the GX8 and the 15mm um, Panasonic Leica lens, which is just a fabulous little combination. Um, but I also have some Olympus um, camera bodies that I tried that lens on. And one of the things that I love about it is that it has an aperture ring. And of course, on the Olympus bodies, the aperture ring is non-functional, uh, which is a shame. And it's it's one of those things that I think is a persistent request. Um, and my assumption is that there's some kind of um, barrier to um, allowing that functionality. So I wondered if you're able to, to comment, I guess, on, on just little sticking points like that that kind of ruin the, the perfect compatibility. I'm not sure the exact reason behind it behind why you lose some of the electronics when you go from system to system. Um, I don't know if that's to keep each company's proprietary systems just for them, which right. I may have a little bit to do with it. Um, we have been getting better in that, you know, in the past, when people used Olymp uh, Olympus lenses on Panasonic bodies, they lost all stabilization. Yeah. Now right. we have body stabilization on most of our cameras, so you at least get to use that if you can't use the Olympus um, optical stabilization. So, you know, there are, I guess, inroads being made. It's still not perfect, but it, it is much better than it was a few years ago. Right. That's very interesting. Uh, I'm also curious about something uh, along these lines, which is that when, when it's time to plan your product roadmap, is that something that happens, you know, taking into account what the other company is doing, or is that completely independent? 
I mean, do you guys talk to Olympus and say, okay, you guys are doing this lens, so we are going to do this one? Or is it just... It's totally separate. Yeah, it's totally separate. When we're planning our product lineup, we look at what the entire industry is doing. Um, now, mind you, we will look at what lenses Olympus has because we don't want to duplicate them all, right? Right. We're, we will look for where there's a niche that needs to be filled. Um, but we don't collaborate with them and say, okay, you guys are putting out uh, this focal length, so we'll do this other focal length, right? We don't do that. Right. That makes sense. And just speaking of lenses, um, one of the things that mirrorless is, you know, and this is not just for Micro Four Thirds, this is kind of a general fact of, of mirrorless cameras, as all of these manufacturers are building out their lens lineups, one of the things that's missing so far is some of the specialty lenses like um, tilt shift lenses and things like super telephoto primes for sports work. And so far there's been almost none for any system anywhere. And I, I'm just wondering, like, is that something that um, hasn't come to fruition yet because it's um, because there's not enough demand yet? Or is there some other reason? Because they are specialty lenses, but I feel like, um, especially for people who are working in architectural photography or something like that, a tilt shift lens is like a baseline requirement for them, right? So they can't, even if they would love to get into the system otherwise, they just can't because part of their toolkit is missing. Um, for tilt shift, we haven't had any demand for that so far. Though right. I did hear someone mention the other day that there um, is an adapter for Micro Four Thirds. That will give you the tilt shift capability. Right. So third party company has released that. Oh, that's nice. Um, as for the super telephoto, that's something that we've been asking for for a while. Um, we did come up with our Leica 100 to 400, which has been very popular. Yeah. Um, but as for a, like a, a longer prime, uh, it's something that has been on our radar for quite some time and that we've been asking for in planning meetings. So We'll have to wait and see if that's going to come to fruition. Yeah, and it seems like a great opportunity because Micro Four Thirds having a crop factor of two, you can get really long lenses and and they're still, you know, fairly small and compact. So that's a that's an advantage that you guys have over the bigger sensor guys. And uh, yeah, it makes sense to pursue that and and go for it. I mean, our our Leica 100 to 400 that we have, which is the equivalent of a 200 to 800 on full frame. Yeah, that's um, insane. <laughs> it's only 985 grams, so it's less than a kilo. Yeah. So for someone who's doing, um, you know, sports, birding, wildlife, the fact that you can carry around that kind of lens and shoot handheld if needed, I mean, that opens up a whole new new world of opportunity. Um, I travel a lot, so for me, it's wonderful to be able to carry a ton of gear and you know my bag's only you know <laughs> less than 10 pounds lucky you <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked a bit about the collaboration with olympus the sort of partnership that you guys have uh, but you also have uh, an interesting collaboration with another uh, company that's very famous very well loved around the world which is leica and you just mentioned the 100 to 400 lens which by all accounts, is a fantastic piece of glass. But I'm interested to know a little bit more about the story behind the relationship between Panasonic and Leica, because these are two companies that seem to be focused on different things, but somehow the mix of both just produces amazing results. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder, what's the process like in, term of, in terms of 
the role that each company has in the de- in where, when you guys are developing a product like who takes care of the design who t- who takes care of the manufacturing the quality control and so on uh, c- can you give us a little bit of information on, on how all of that works sure so the partnership with Leica has been with Panasonic cameras from day one um, so it's been 16 17 years I guess since we started making consumer based digital cameras um, The actual brand name Lumix means Leica Matshusta Mix. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) So right from the beginning, Leica was always part of our brand name. Um, Matshusta was the parent company of Panasonic. Um, And then, you know, about uh, eight years ago, we changed our name from Matshusta to Panasonic. So Leica was always, like I said, in there right from day one. And it's been great for us because you know, having the weight of their name behind our brand really helps sell because people know Leica's good glass. So the way it works is that um, Leica designs all the specs, especially for the branded lenses. Mm -hmm. And then we manufacture it in our uh, plant uh, using their specifications. And then we do all the quality control. Nice. Well, if if the results are an indication, the collaboration is going really well because those are some of my favorite lenses that I've ever shot with. Well, one of the most popular ones is the Leica 42512. Oh yeah. You know, that one <laughs> that one's made in Japan. It's hand polished. So there's a lot of care and quality that goes into it, which is very reminiscent of the way that um, Leica works. Yeah, it's a beast. Yeah. If Josh were here, he'd be uh singing its praises because I know that that was one of his absolute favorite lenses from any system. Yeah, definitely. And the the output that he got from it and that, that I see from it in general is just unbelievable. That's that's a special one. I can't wait to try it at some point. So we've moved, we had always like a primes before um, and they were kind of uh, earmarked by their um, wide apertures. Yeah. Now we started to go into like a zooms and most of them with the exception of the 100 to 400 are all in the f 2.8 4.0 range so still fairly fast um but like a zoom wasn't something that we had done before so we we're having really great success right now with our uh, 12 to 60 and 8 to 18 like a branded lenses um the 8 to 18 was just released last month so you were mentioning architecture so for that for real estate that's a great lens for sure and landscape work and all that good stuff and we also at uh, Photokina last year, we had shown a prototype of our Leica 50 to 200 that's on the radar as well. So um, hopefully we'll have that out. I was there. I saw it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah I know. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Uh, so it's exciting. So now we're going to have a full lineup of not only primes, but Leica zooms as well. Well, it's really exciting. What about cameras, though? Is that something that's in the cards for the future? Like, are you guys considering making an actual Micro Four Thirds interchangeable lens camera with some sort of Leica branding beyond Lumix, which you just explained also stands for Leica in a way. Yeah, I don't think it's in the cards. Um, we have done our own versions of Leica cameras in the past, um, something right. like our LX100, which is basically a Leica camera, but with Panasonic software in it. So, you know, we have done that, but we haven't actually come out with a Leica branded camera. And like I said, I'm not sure that that is something that would come out, but, you know, you never know. 
Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, it's just it would be interesting to see because you have such a long term partnership with them Mm -hmm. um, and it might be an opportunity for them as well to go after an entirely different segment of the market than the one that we usually associate them with. Mm -hmm. Now, what I really liked is earlier you were talking about embracing um, your sort of aptitude for video. And and that's something that um, obviously I've come to appreciate with with all of our GH4 shooting. And for a lot of people, it seems like the GH series has done for indie videography what the Canon 5D Mark II once did, you know, is, is bringing a, um, a compact body into a spot where uh, it is producing sufficiently great output that you can actually replace a lot of much higher end cameras, much bulkier things with this compact, mobile and, you know, extremely capable camera. Um, as you're as you're sort of embracing that, how does that inform um, decisions about like product design and lens design, especially, I mean, you were just mentioning these zooms. And one of the things that I imagine is, is true for all of them is that they are optimized for video use going forward, because now you know that people who love Panasonic are probably going to be taking full advantage of, of the video capabilities. Yeah. The bodies, uh, obviously GH bodies are great for video. Um, lens wise, we get a lot of people using, um, adapters and either full frame lenses or cine lenses on our GH bodies, which right. kind of makes them even more versatile that you do have that option. Um, and just opens up a huge range of opportunity for people shooting documentaries, people doing running gun, um, you know, broadcasting. There's a, a whole bunch of different um, challenges for it. Uh, sorry, opportunities for it. So I think that, Especially from the GH2 is when it really started to turn the tide toward indie filmmaking um, and move on from there. Um, and now with GH5, it's just, you know, it's a go-to product now for a lot of um, independent filmmakers. Yeah, I'll say I can't wait till we can upgrade. Cause there's, I remember looking at the uh, spec sheet when, when things were first announced and I was like, I don't, how did they manage to cram this much capability into the same, you know, form factor. It's, you know, all these other bigger cameras are, ta- you know, it's like, oh, they'll overheat. We can't do this. We can't do that. And then you guys come out and it's like, no, no, we did everything. It's all there. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, the, the GH5 was a little bit delayed just because um, going to 60 frames a second really presented an additional heating challenge. So um, theoretically, we were supposed to have delivered it around September. Um, but the engineering team really did their homework. They took their time. Um, they made sure that everything was good to go before they released it because, you know, that's kind of a death knell for a product is to come out and all of a sudden it's shutting right. down because of heating issues. So I think yeah, no that, kidding. you know, hats off to the engineering team. They did a great job on this and it was really worth those extra few months wait. Yeah, and that really surprised me at Photokina. I got the impression that you guys were all ready to go, but were somehow keeping it under wraps for a little bit longer, but it, that you guys were eager to tell everybody about the camera and show everything <laughs> about it. Yeah, and So that, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, trust me, we would have loved to have released it then, but we just wanted to make extra, extra, extra sure that it really was 100% and good to go and that we wouldn't have any issues. Yeah, that's a difficult decision to make, but I think ultimately whenever um, whenever a company makes a decision like that, it's ultimately for, for the best because now you've got a product on the market where you are confident in its ability to live up to people's expectations in all sorts of demanding scenarios and you're not 
uh, like you said, you're, you're not going to have that situation where people are willing to try this new thing, but it fails them in some way that it really shouldn't. And then even though it's an edge case, like you just that whole problem goes away because you've you've spent more time um, polishing it, essentially, which I, I think is the right move. And, you know, Panasonic has always been known for quality products, so we don't want to ruin that reputation by releasing something to the market that's not ready yet. I mean, obviously, there's always little tiny things that slide through that may not get noticed. But for, you know, big issues, we want to make sure that everything is 100% good to go before it gets released to the market. Right. Now, one of the things that's interesting about um, and this is not, um, I mean, it's it's not new to the GH5, but it's relevant to the GH5 as well as the GH4. Um, you have a, uh, a sort of color grading profile, if you will, a recording profile that facilitates um, more sophisticated color grading in post-production called V-Log. Mm -hmm. And it is actually available as a, as a sort of separate upgrade, which you, uh, you know, you get on a little key and you activate it. Um, that's kind of an, an unusual approach to, to doing something like that. Was that just a, a cost saving measure so that people who don't need it are not um, paying for it? Or, or why did you guys decide to do uh, to separate that out in the way that you have, especially because at this point you've sort of embraced the notion that, yeah, okay, the GH5, of course it's a capable stills camera, but a lot of its appeal is in the remarkable video capabilities. And, you know, you hit on part of it there that, you know, not everyone is going to want vlogs. So why charge people for something that they don't need? Um, right. The other thing was that there was a lot of time and effort and expense gone into developing this, for the GH4. And that's why it didn't get released when the GH4 got released. It came along after. Yeah. So, you know, we decided to charge for it um, just to kind of recoup those development costs that we had. Um, and other companies are charging for some um, specific firmware upgrades as well. So we weren't the only one doing it. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a version in Europe that came out called a, I think it was a GH4R that actually had it included um, for an additional right. cost. Right. So you've got a kit that essentially you just buy that and you're all set to go if that's what you're after. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. I This is kind of a, a dumb question, but since you mentioned the, you know, the GH5R or something, <laughs> the, the naming schemes of these things sometimes drive me crazy. So I, I want to I try and clarify this. So you've got GH, which is kind of the flagship, yeah. and then you've got GX cameras, which... Would you say that they're more the photography focused lineup or what's the, how do you separate those? The GX lineup is more to do with aesthetics. That's what we okay. call our flat rangefinder style cameras. Uh -huh. Right. Um, and yes, they are more photography based, but when the GX85 came out, because it was one of our first bodies with our um, five axis uh, body stabilization, um, they, we actually sold a lot for video purposes. Right. Right. So, you know, most of our models are crossover between stills and videos. I don't think you can look at any single one and say that's for stills only. I mean, even the GX8 had, um, you know, mic input, even though it was only 2.5 mil instead of 3.5 mil. Um, yeah. And because it did have body stabilization, some people were using it for video as well. Yeah. I mean, I tested the video capabilities as well, and they are, um, you know, perfectly fine for, for that kind of form factor, which... I guess that makes more sense as a distinction is looking at it as a as a body style um, that sets those two families apart. Yeah, and it, since you guys have 
all the expertise for video. It, it makes all the sense in the world to just include it. Yeah, why would you leave that out? And prior to GH4, there really was a line, I guess, where you know these cameras were stills, this camera was video. Um, after GH4 and the success of that, we really started to incorporate a lot of those features into our G series. Right. So something like a G7, which you know the predecessor G6 really was a stills camera. Now we've added the 4K video um, mic and headphone jack into that. Now that's a truly hybrid camera. It's had the best sensor, you know, um, for stills, but also had all the video features that you get on a GH4. Um, so that was the start of the crossover. And now almost all of our models are, you know, have kind of the best of both worlds. Um, obviously, not everything has the high-end features that GH5 does, but it'll still do a great job shooting video and give you a lot of um, extra features. Yeah, and it's good to have options, you know, at different price points as well. And I think the choices that you've made in terms of what you give up as you move through the product lineup uh, is wise. Uh, you know, there's never a camera that feels um, intentionally crippled in some way. Like, they're all very capable for what they you know, represent. So that's, that's good because, you know, for, from other manufacturers, we've run into situations where a camera comes out and it feels like what that, you know, there's some low hanging fruit that's missing here for no real reason. It feels arbitrary. So it's good that this is not the case uh, here. I was also wondering, um, one of the things that um, happens a lot in other manufacturers when they deal with video for cameras, video features, is they have this sort of recording limit of 30 minutes. Um, and I've always understood it to be, to have something to do with the way that um, you classify a camera when you're shipping it around the world. Can you just explain once and for all wh where that comes from and, and sort of why Panasonic cameras uh, like the GH5 do not, are not subject to it? So it's, it, I believe it was an EU regulation um, that anything who could, sh uh, any piece of gear that could shoot more than 30 minutes continuous video was classified as a video camera and they had higher taxes and tariffs associated with it. Yeah. So we managed to get around that by classifying GH4, uh, sorry, I guess we started with GH2 um, and onwards that those were video cameras and not stills cameras. So yes, we're paying extra taxes and tariffs to ship them, but you can also do the unlimited video recording, which, you know, for that industry, especially, you know, the indies, that's what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. It is valuable to, to be able to do that in body without having to attach an external recorder, which of course works, but then you're, you're adding bulk to the kit. And part of the appeal of it is that, you know, you don't need to have all those extras with you. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's great that you guys are doing the extra work and solving the problem for the consumer instead of just saying, no, we're going to pay the minimum that we can get away with. And then you're stuck shooting only 30 minute clips. So. Mm -hmm. so I want to talk a little bit about the bigger picture of mirrorless cameras and, and sort of the imaging industry as well. Um, I mean, given, given your position, you've got quite a, a good perspective on where things are going in general. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on how you see the imaging industry today and, and where you think it might be going like what what sorts of trends are you seeing that that might inform future products and uh, future things that we see so for interchangeable lens especially the slide and decline of sales of dslr has continued year after year so they've been down anywhere from 
15 to 20% year over year, which for companies that are focused only on DSLR, you know, it, it is hurting them. Right. Sure. Um, mirrorless in North America is continuing to grow. Um, it's been almost 10 years now since we launched our first G1 back in 2008. And while it's not growing as fast as in Europe and Asia, um, it should be around 25% of interchangeable lens sale this year. So one in every four cameras sold is a mirrorless camera. That's nice. Wow. And we just see that continue to rise. You know, the, the problem with, I think with some DSLRs is they're not keeping up with the technology as fast as mirrorless are. I mean, something as simple as a touch screen or a swivel screen or Wi-Fi or all these things that are have been in mirrorless for quite some time. Why was that so difficult to institute in a DSLR? And, you know, yeah. that's what the customers are looking for these days. Yeah, absolutely. And for a while there, DSLR makers had the excuse of having longer upgrade cycles. Like mm -hmm. they would say, no, but our cameras last longer and therefore we will incorporate those features when the next version comes out. And then the next version came out and it didn't have those features. <laughs> so that excuse kind of went out the window. Exactly. And the customer just needs to realize that. They're saying, hey, that's all you're doing is making excuses. Why aren't you giving us what we want? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and that's that never feels good as a as a customer. And actually, one of the things that um, that I personally appreciate about companies like Panasonic and like Olympus is the um, the pacing of development of new things and the fact that, yes, there is a certain gap between bodies, but in the intervening time, there's a lot of work on the firmware to add, you know, in like entirely new features. You know, the, these are like transformative improvements to the camera. It's not just fixing bugs. And I, as a as a customer, that makes me feel um, more confident because I, it's not like, oh, I've bought this thing and now I'm stuck with it as is for the next four years. And all the problems are going to be fixed in the next version. But, I, you know, there's nothing for me. Right. So that's is that part of the um, core I mean, is that something that, that mirrorless, because it's, you know, more nimble in that sense, uh, an advantage that you guys have that DSLRs are not able to do? Or is that just something that is a deliberate effort on your part to to do that, to give consumers that confidence? I'm not sure if DSLR companies are unable to do it or unwilling, because um, I don't know enough about their inner workings. But it just seems that, you know, yeah, the firmware updates for Sony, Fuji, Olympus, Panasonic um, are always ongoing, are continuous, um, that we are supporting the customers in the format that they bought, which is, you know, good news for the customer. Um, I think because of the incursion of smartphones so much into the world, you'll have noticed that in the past three or four years, not as many camera models are being released right. and not as often. So you also have to support that customer. So yeah, you bought this this model and we know there's not going to be an update for two years or three years, but we want to make sure that we're still doing something for you. So that's where all the, the firmware and improvements come in and not just on the bodies, on the lenses too. Yeah, that that's a very interesting comment because I, I, I did notice that too, like from 2012 to 2015, it seems like there was a new camera every three months, mm -hmm. but now it's true that the pace has slowed down quite a bit. Yeah, the, um, you know, sales are shrinking overall, the whole market. So the money's just not there right. uh, into research and development. And the customers have got to the point where the camera I have is is great. I don't need to upgrade every year. 
So kind of in response to that trend, then, yeah, the, the model releases have slowed down um, and more care, I think, is being taken to actually significantly upgrade the features. If you're going to release a new camera, don't just give them one little thing and ask them to put out, you know, another $500, $1,000 out of their pocket. Right. You know, make it worthwhile. Yeah. Where do you see smartphones in this whole equation? Because that that seems like really the biggest threat to um, the the consumer segment of the you know imaging world in general. Because for a lot of people now, the smartphone um, output is getting to be good enough that they're able to enjoy their photos in just about every context that they care to, right? There's enough megapixels for a decent sized print. They're mostly looking at it on the web and on their devices themselves, which is fine. So how is that like that incursion of smartphone imaging, where does that put the future of mirrorless cameras? Like what are they going to be uh, competing on? What are they going to be um, leaning on as the, as the reason that you continue to want to buy a dedicated camera? So that's where the niche features come into play. I mean, you want obviously body stabilization, you want long zoom, um, you want fast burst mode, you want the ability to shoot 4k video um, at variable frame rates. So that customer that wants those extras will still find a need for mirrorless camera. Um, The customer who doesn't need that, um, obviously they're just going to stick with their phone. So the camera manufacturers have to find a way to find those niches, to find those gaps, and to address them with the features in the camera that will um, actually encourage people to keep buying. Yeah, that makes sense. And from my perspective, I could be wrong here, but I've been witnessing that as a decline in um, the availability and the interest in point and shoot as as a category of camera. Like that's basically being eroded away. And in its place, we see a lot of manufacturers really targeting the professional market. And this is, uh, you know, DSLR, but mostly mirrorless manufacturers are going, okay, if if people are buying these things, it's because they're interested in photography. We need to give them capable tools. So, you know, we're seeing prices go up. We're seeing cameras become more sophisticated. Um, I guess the only exception would be the the bridge camera, which, uh, you know, is a category that sits kind of, you know, above the point and shoot, but it's not quite as capable it's almost like the the camera for people who really are okay for the most part with their smartphone but just want that little bit more do you, do you think those two categories will continue or is it eventually going to be the case that really it's just the professionals that are buying dedicated cameras um for bridge cameras it's still around 25 percent of the point and shoot market so it's still a large segment a lot of those people have big vacations or something coming up and they want that extra zoom right you know it's for doing shooting the moon or doing wildlife or birds. So there is still a definite need for bridge cameras. Um, as for mirrorless, one of the biggest trends we're seeing is that people want better quality video now. So you'll see all these YouTubers out there, they're all fighting for subscribers. Yeah. But yeah. where before crappy video used to be okay, it's not that way anymore. And the quality and the production value have to increase in order for you to get those more subscribers. And so those YouTubers are turning to really high-end point-and-shoot cameras or mirrorless cameras as a way to do their daily vlogs or their, um, you know, their major YouTube videos. And that's where we're getting a lot of new business now, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. That's that's obviously... (laughs) I believe it too, yeah. But I want to touch on something that we've kind of closed over for a minute there, which is the smartphone photography and the relationship 
between a smartphone as a dedicated camera and, a, and an actual interchangeable lens camera. Because one of the latest technological advancements that we're seeing in, smart, in smartphone photography is this computational photography that we've talked about before on the show, uh, the greatest example of which is, of course, the portrait mode on, on the latest uh, iPhones, which is great. It, it gives you a software simulated uh, depth of field effect and you can kind of, you can get pretty decent looking out of focus images. Some people out there are saying, this is the last frontier. This is, now smartphones are finally as good as dedicated cameras. And once the technology matures, we're not going to need cameras anymore. I don't agree with that, of course. But there's no reason why computational photography couldn't be applied in a standalone dedicated camera. And uh, I'm curious about uh, I'm curious as to whether that's something you guys are looking into and is there some obvious uh, opportunities that you see in this in this area? Um, we do have certain digital effects that we put into our cameras. Um, like one of our bridge cameras has built-in ND filters and that's all electronic. Right. Um, we have things like shifting your um, from shallow to wide depth of field. And again, that's all something that's electronic because that's targeting those customers maybe don't know enough about photography to use the tools, you know, that they, they have. So, you know, we've always been putting special filters, um, you know, things like that, digital effects and cameras long before Instagram was doing it. Um, yeah, and sure. I think, yeah. you know, there's that crossover now because we're giving the customer what they can get in the smartphone, which is very important. Um, you know, so that it just comes down to, how much are they going to use that camera? What are the purposes for? Um, I don't think cameras will go away completely. I think there'll always be that customer who wants that, um, you know, that extra quality, that extra features that they can't get in their smartphone. Um, but at the end of the day, the good thing is people are still taking pictures. Whether they're using their phone or a camera, they're still taking pictures and video. And I think that's that's very important for the industry as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think... The curious thing about this is that smartphones are getting better as cameras, of course, but cameras are also getting a whole lot smarter. <laughs> so it's an interesting contrast there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think the last thing that I really just, uh, this is a frustration for me, and we've spoken about it on the show before. Um, for those of us who do like dedicated cameras, um, one of the things that plagues mirrorless in general, but especially micro four thirds, is this notion that you can't have anything that's not tiny in the system. Any of the lenses that are larger than a certain size, people start going, oh no, this is against the ethos of the system and da da da, da. and same thing with the bodies. And I, I have the complete opposite opinion. I would love nothing more than to have a, like, again, this is the professional camera. This is not necessarily what I want to take with me on, on casual trips and things like that, but my, my professional work mirrorless camera, I would like it to have a substantial grip in order to fit a substantial battery, in order to have the kind of battery life that, you know, I used to have with DSLRs. Do you think that we're at the point now with mirrorless in general that we can start seeing manufacturers making cameras that are addressing that need as well of being like, okay, yes, we can make them small, but sometimes the size is beneficial and that's a good thing and here's an option for you. Well, when you look at full frame mirrorless, basically the, the bodies and lenses are almost the same size as DSLR. So you're really not gaining any size or weight advantage there. 
Um, when it comes to micro four thirds, we still have smaller and lighter lenses. Yeah. Um, but a body like a GH5 could be comparable to a DSLR body. Um, you know, because that customer is used to that size, that grip, that battery life. So I think for customers switching over from DSLR, they're more in their comfort zone with that size body. Yeah. So it may not exactly be smaller, it, but it probably has more features, more technology in it than what they're used to. But oh, that's it, for sure. It yeah. gives them that comfort when they're switching that, hey, this is what I'm used to. I don't have to use some teeny tiny camera where I can't access all my controls and menus because it's too small for my hand. Yeah. And I know at least when it comes to the GH series, I mean, I'm, I'm holding our GH4 right now and it is one of the most comfortable grips of, of any camera I've used because it's, like you said, it's familiar to those of us coming from DSLRs in terms of the general layout of things, but it also manages to maintain um, enough of a grip that it feels comfortable, even though the body mass is smaller. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's pretty great. I mean, that's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, and we got a lot of accolades and kudos for the grip on the GH4. Some review sites call it the most comfortable grip on camera on the market. Right. So when we were building a GH5 and we knew it was going to be slightly larger, yeah. the grip was one of the most important things. Like I was at a meeting in Japan, um, the U.S. team and the Canadian team were there at the same time, and we debated for I don't know how long about the grip on the GH5 and we actually made the product team go back and change it because it wasn't comfortable enough because wow. we know for those running gun people, those indie filmmakers to be able to be as mobile as we want them to be. It means you're not on a gimbal. You're not on a monopod. Um, you're hand holding that camera a lot of times. So it's gotta be comfortable. You have to be able to use it for, you know, maybe hours at a time just holding it in your hand. So yeah. something that's, uncomfortable you're not going to want it to do that so yeah it, it was quite a debate about the grip alone <laughs> how do you how do you iterate on that i mean that's so interesting to, to you know back to the drawing board or like refine this how how do you determine what's comfortable and and what's not is it like a focus group thing or yeah, a bunch they, of prototypes when we i go to japan a couple times a year and normally um upcoming cameras they'll start with a mock-up it may just be a wooden mock-up depending on how far a, long in the process they are or it could be an actual body that's just not working um, yeah. and we try it out we we put it in our hands make sure that the grip feels comfortable that the ergonomics are good that the layout of the buttons is where they should be right. that you're not pressing something you should be so you know all those things are very important into the process and the feedback from the countries around the world the sales companies is very important to making that final product because sometimes the engineers, they may not be shooters themselves. Right. So when they're designing something, they don't realize that. But, you know, we try it out. We test it. We have beta people around the world testing it. And we give our feedback. Um, and if it's possible to make changes, then we will. Yeah, I almost feel like you have to get it into the hands of those beta folks pretty early on to catch any sort of significant things that would affect the, the form, especially for something like a grip where changing it might adjust uh what you're able to fit within it you know size of the battery or what circuitry can can still fit in there so that's that must be quite a, a difficult thing uh, not to mention the fact that people have different hand sizes right so you've got to you're optimizing for the middle and and i've had you know really experienced shooters that love gh that came back to me and said a gh5 is just too big for me and it was only a small difference in size um, but yeah it's that personal to people and i always tell customers don't worry about the features on the camera. 
pick something that's comfortable because it's not comfortable for you. You're not going to use it. And then worry about the features and everything secondary because that should be your most important thing that you use it. That is the best advice. <laughs> I could not agree more. All right. Well, um, I think we've gotten through a lot of the outline in terms of what we what we had wanted to talk about. Um, did you did did stuff come up while we were talking that that we haven't mentioned yet that you want to address? Because we can just add some more on. Um, the only thing that was on your list that we didn't talk about was the different model numbers in the different regions. Yeah. And I just want to address that because it is a bit of an issue. People um, don't understand why we have different models. Um, so originally it was to kind of identify which models uh, had the European um, power capabilities, you know, different battery chargers, different plugs, different adapters, um, and Asian as well. So they had a different model number because of that. Um, over time, with online shopping and global marketplaces, the secondary feature of that is that it stops transshipping and gray goods. So, you know, one country can't dump their gear and have, you know, Russian models being sold on Amazon to American customers because there's those different model numbers. So it's just another safeguard against that. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that as a as a consequence of having multiple names, but that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, because, you know, Amazon is a very open marketplace and they do not control some of the sellers on there as much as they should. So, sure, you know, yeah. we're, as camera manufacturers and not just us, everyone, we're always fighting against the influx of great goods on there. Um, and so this is just kind of one extra little safeguard against that. Right. It's very unfortunate yeah. when you uh, buy something believing it's genuine and you realize you ended up with a gray gray market item. Exactly. And the customer has no idea right. sometimes. They don't know that the warranty is not valid, that it has a different plug and current um, voltage that they can't even use in their own country, right? Because it's not specified on there. So, you know, this is, like I said, uh, an additional safeguard against that. And I guess in an ideal case, as a North American buyer, I'm not even seeing the other names. Like, yes, on a global scale, I they exist and that's, you know, it's the same camera technically. But for me, when I'm in a store or something like that, I would not be aware of those other model designations, um, which I guess is is why um, is the ideal case. But of course, like you said, because people are shopping online now, we are aware of the other ones. So it's like, why, why is the same product called three different things? It's not exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because it, it really complicates the whole marketing effort, right? Because sometimes you read about a product on a website that's not from your own country, and I, I would even dare to say it's the vast majority of times, especially for me, which, who I, I'm used to reading the web in English. So I would be seeing all the American names, and maybe I have no idea how the camera is called in my own country, but that's okay, I guess, if you... If you do the research and get ready to buy the stuff, then you should be careful, of course, but that's it's probably not an issue. Well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I feel better about it because it was one of those things that just felt so frustrating, but <laughs> it actually, there's a good reason. So, all right, we'll let it slide. <laughs> all right, Trisha, thank you so much for your time. That was, uh, I, I learned a lot. Um, I think that we, um, I think that we can all agree that, um, the future of mirrorless and the future of micro four thirds looks bright uh, when people are so passionate about it 
And uh, I, for one, cannot wait to see what comes next. I'm hoping that soon I will be shooting things on GH5s so that I can get some of that 60 frame per second goodness. Um, <laughs> and hopefully we can have you back at some point to talk about other good things. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, it was our pleasure. <laughs>